Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess. Or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we get a lesson in baking from master pastry chef Claudia Fleming. We discuss her tried and true techniques, her all-time favorite desserts, and her newest creation. Okay, so my latest favorite thing to do is to sear pears in brown butter. And then once they've browned, deglaze the pan with maple syrup, stick it in the oven and just cook them till they're tender. Take the pears out, reduce the maple syrup a little bit, whisk in some butter and some vanilla ice cream, and yum. Also coming up, we make Thai-grilled pork skewers. And Bianca Bosker walks us through the fascinating history of tablescaping, the art of over-the-top dining table decorations. But first, reporter Ali Pham brings us the story of green crabs, an invasive species whose population is now on the rise. Allie, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you so much for having me. I guess we're being invaded, uh, it's not like a bad 50s sci-fi movie, uh, by green crabs, especially in New England. What is a green crab? Yeah, so these guys, they're they're pretty little crabs. They're kind of like about the size of a bar of soap. They're invasive species, so they are originally from Europe. 
So when the ships started coming from Europe to the U.S., these guys came over too, and that happened in about the uh, 1800s. So what makes these crabs so adaptable? Are they different than, a, let's say, a blue crab? Yeah, they are. They're really, really adaptable um, to conditions here in New England. So um, I talked to Gabriella Brott, and she is the fisheries extension specialist at the University of New Hampshire Sea Grant. And what she told me is that, um, so there's a couple things. One is they can survive in a lot of temperature range. So temperatures can go up and they're still happy. The only thing that's really going to control their population is if you freeze them. So in the past, winters would get really cold and the population would be kept in check. But now with climate change and rising sea temperatures, what's happening is these green crabs are not getting wiped out. And the other thing that is really giving them a leg up is how fertile they are. So here's Gabriella. Warmer water temperatures leads to higher fecundity. So if you're going to produce 180,000 eggs per female and it's good and it's really good temperature, imagine that. So that's one female and there's millions and millions and millions. Yeah. Okay. So what's the problem? I mean, people like to eat crabs, I guess, but are they causing havoc with the rest other species uh, yeah in new england yeah they sure are i mean um they actually have very similar taste to a lot of people so they really like to eat mussels they really like to eat oysters they really like to eat clams and they're like voracious little guys what ends up happening whatever habitat they invade you notice there's not anything else If you are trying to have a booming oyster farming business or shellfish harvesting business, that's their favorite food. So they're completely mowing down shellfish beds. And then in estuaries, for example, estuaries are great for for nurseries, for fish, lobster. They provide a lot of habitat and structure so that they can hide and grow. Uh, These crabs dig. And they also clip eelgrass beds. And so that habitat is getting reduced. So why not fish for green crabs and just eat them? Yeah. So interestingly enough, that is a big tradition already in Venice. So I also talked with um, Jamie Bassett, and he is a green crab fisherman from Chatham, Massachusetts. And he actually took a trip out to Venice. And what he was telling me is that in Venice, there's a whole culture and industry built around the green crabs that just doesn't exist here in the U.S. The Venetian fishermen, they've been doing this hundreds of years. This has been passed down from generation and generation, father to son, and um, they're experts. And uh, another takeaway was, was that this product is in demand. They go for up to 80 or 90 euros per kilo, and they just they can't keep it in stock. That hasn't really happened here because these crabs are really, really small. So if you're going to have these guys be a seafood product, you got to try to find them when they're a soft shell. So the soft shell season in New England is usually, what, May and June or something. It's it's for a couple months. Yeah. And for green crabs, it actually varies from male to female as well. So is it harder to harvest green crabs during molt when they're soft shell than for, let's say, a blue crab? 
Yeah, so that's where Gabriella's research has really come in. It's really hard to tell when these crabs are going to molt. She spent years collecting them, taking photos, and just could not figure out what the signs were for molting. One of my now partners actually went to Venice and they came back and they said, well, there's these signs. I'm like, no way, no way, no how. I have photographic evidence. There is no sign on these things. So I showed them pictures and they pointed, you know, they're like, it's all on the abdominal side. So if you look around there, you see this shading and this halo. And I'm like, you're all nuts. There's nothing here. There is nothing here. But as it was getting closer to male molting season, and we started really looking. Yes, these signs were starting to so come they're up. they're really subtle. So they're incredibly subtle. And then as you handle these crabs more and more and more, it just jumps out at you. So if you go crab fishing and you end up with a big haul, some of them are going to be about to molt, some aren't. What do you do about that? Yeah, so this is something that both Jamie and Gabriella have been trying to figure out. How do I waste the least amount of time? So if, you know, you pull up a bunch of crabs, there are going to be ones that are about to molt and there are going to be ones that aren't. And so you really just have to hand sort them. And that is that sorting process is also complicated by the fact that if you leave these crabs alone with each other for too long, they will eat each other. Yeah, so that's exact. That's actually why you need to monitor them because what happens is, as a crab molts, that crab will become very slow. You know, they're getting ready to sort of have their new shell. Yeah. But the crabs that aren't at that stage, they'll eat anything. Right. So they'll eat a crab that has just molted. Right. So they cannibalize each other. Vulnerable. And that crab is totally vulnerable. Right. Doesn't have a hard shell, and so it's a constant uh, discipline of sorting and separating. Mm-hmm. So. Oh, nice. The great personality, too. They're, they're small. Uh, they molt at different times, and they eat each other. So why would a commercial fisherman spend time in a crab with so little meat and it's not something that people are used to eating? Is that because there's so many of them out there? All they have to do is figure out a sales pitch? Is that why? Yeah. I mean, they're really easy to catch. There's no regulations on them. And if the demand is really there and they're selling at the prices that they're selling for in Venice, that's that would be worth it. So when you spoke to Gabriella, her conclusion about green crabs as food was what? Gabriella actually has a great little um, explainer for that where she says a green crab is kind of like rabbit and you know maybe like other crabs you've eaten are more like chicken so it's a little gamier it's stronger it packs a big punch so you did have a chance i think to cook green crabs what did you cook and what was it like when i visited gabriella um, we got to cook some green crab ramen there so we used um, hard shell green crabs and boiled them and created kind of a green crab broth that we were able to cook the noodles in. And then we also cracked open a bunch of those little crabs and picked out the meat, which is, I understand why they need to be a soft shell product because picking the meat out of those crabs is a lot of labor and there's not a lot of meat in there. Although it does taste good. It's yummy. (laughs) If I do say so myself. (laughs) It is really good. Yeah. And I do like the lime on yeah. it. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, now that I'm like, eating it more, I can taste that sweetness. Right? You're going to taste it still in like an hour on your drive home. <laughs> right. So is this one of those stories where in New England, there's um, a small group of chefs cooking and serving green crabs? But the fact of the matter is this is an invasive species and we're never going to catch up with it. I mean, it would seem to me that we'd have to be eating a lot of green crabs to make the population low enough so that the other species, clams, et cetera, are not endangered, right? I mean, there's have to be a major push. Yeah, definitely. I don't know if humans alone can do that just through our consumption, but um, Jamie has a whole plan for green crabs that include human consumption, but also they can be used as bait. They can be used in like dog food. The shells have a lot of nutrients in them, so they can be using fertilizers or compost. So I think if we were really going to tackle it in terms of using them up in some ways, it's going to be more than just just eating them. Allie, thank you so much for being on Mill Street. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was reporter Allie Pham. Right now, my co-host Sarah Molt and I will be answering your culinary questions. Sarah is the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television. So before we take some calls, I do have a question, which is, you worked at La Tulipe, and that whole wonderful idea of a French restaurant with great service and beautiful flowers and everything else, that seems like almost fantastical, right, at this point? I mean, the idea of going out and getting dressed up, you know, I'm so sick of wearing blue jeans, and going out to dinner and someone serves you dinner and there's a menu, is that something you can comprehend at this point or is that just so far in your past? No, you know, it's so funny you should bring that up because that's the one thing I miss the most. We take a long walk every morning with our masks on and what really gets me is walking past restaurants I have this longing, this tugging, like, oh, I just want to go in there and sit down and order a nice, you know, meal with a glass of wine and have a wonderful conversation with the husband. And it's just so sad because I I can't imagine when it's going to happen again. Can you? No, I I just, it's, it's only been whatever, not a huge amount of time, but those experiences are now becoming you know, shrouded in history. Right, right. And so I'm going to be so glad to go out and, you know, spend some time and money on restaurants, support the restaurant folks. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I couldn't agree more. But also just enjoy that time. Anyway, okay, let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Scott Rogers from Madison, Wisconsin. How are you? I'm doing great, thank you. We've been trying new recipes to take advantage of the eggs that our backyard chickens lay, including shakshuka from a New York Times recipe by Melissa Clark. It calls for sliced red bell peppers, but my wife is very sensitive to that flavor. I tried my usual substitute, poblano chilies, and the flavor was excellent, but the sliced poblanos, they stayed tough and stringy in the stew, and they didn't contribute any liquid like a bell pepper would. So a recipe that should have made four to six servings barely made three. So here's my problem. How do I make shakshuka without bell peppers? A couple things. I was in Mexico City a few months ago, and they make rajas, which is the poblanos with onions and sour cream, essentially. And the woman I was cooking with did something really interesting. She fried the poblanos for about a minute or so in hot oil 
took them out, uh, let them cool a little, and then peeled them. And this is, you know, easier than charring them, let's say, over a flame. It was really quick. And then you end up with a tender meat inside. So that's something you might do for this. I am a little puzzled, though. I don't understand the liquid issue because shakshuka would be, what, three bell peppers, red pepper, something like that? Yeah. Obviously, they have a lot of water content, but not enough to substantially change, you know, the total content in the recipe. I mean, usually a pint of tomatoes, cherry tomatoes or something goes into this. You could up the amount of tomatoes to make up the difference, but you wouldn't need to use that much more, an extra tomato maybe. That's the one thing I didn't quite understand. Sarah, did you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, no, I agree. I I don't see peppers as contributing all that much juice. I would have 100% said what you did about the poblanos. What makes them tough is their skins. So if you get rid of the skins either by broiling them or what Chris just said about frying them, then that you could certainly add them. But I think it's more to do with the tomatoes. The tomatoes are what provides the juice. What kind of tomatoes are you using in your recipe? I was using canned whole and then sliced, and then I put most of the juice from the can back into the stew. Well, that should have been nice and juicy. Sounds like I should try this again and maybe just try doubling the tomatoes and uh, try skinning the poblanos and see where that gets me. I think that would work nicely. You know, huevos rancheros is essentially shakshuka, right? I mean, it's a similar concept. You can just dump the peppers entirely if you want it. I mean, you don't have to have bell peppers or poblanos in it. Poblanos would be great if you yeah, get the skin off. Yeah, I think off, they'd be but, yummy. You know, the concept of eggs essentially simmered or poached in a tomato sauce. I mean, that's all shakshuka really is. There's lots of versions out there. There's also green shakshuka, which is very popular now too. But yeah, I just add a few more tomatoes if you're worried about the amount of liquid. Here's the other thing. At the end of the day, in terms of the liquid, you know, maybe you cooked it down too much. Sure. This is no criticism. It can happen easily. Just add water. Okay. Or, you know what I often do, because I'm not a vegetarian, is I'll add a little bit of chicken broth to anything that over-reduces. Yeah, that, that could definitely be. A first time making a recipe, that sort of thing is, is an easy mistake to make. So Yeah. Well, good for you for yeah, making give that a shot. this recipe. All right. Well, thank you so much. Look forward to it. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Thanks, Scott. Bye-bye. This is Most Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, please give us a call, 855-426-9843. That's 855 855- Four two six nine eight four three, or email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Carmel Dupree. How can we help you, Carmel? We had an abundance of blackberries this year in Louisiana, so I've been making jam. Well, my husband likes jam without the seeds, and... We just had a time trying to figure out how to get the seeds and extract just the juice and some of the pulp. And we've tried so many different things, and I've tried every pot and colander and strainer in my kitchen. And I just thought maybe you had a an easier way to do it. How many quarts of blackberries are we talking I did probably about four batches of jam, one with the seeds and three without the seeds. Well, you can buy, you know, a food strainer and they will take the berries or tomatoes, whatever. You put them in the hopper, turn the crank, and then they go through a horizontal metal piece, which has holes in it. And so the juice comes out, but everything else should fly off, just go out into a bowl. 
I don't know if you have a KitchenAid or a stand mixer, but sometimes they have attachments that are food strainers too. I think an inexpensive manual hand crank one for what you need to be fine. I mean, Sarah, do you have some other? Chris, you're referring to what we used to call a Foley food mill? Yes. Have you tried that, Carmel? I tried that, yeah. And that would still work. And that worked somewhat. We'd have to even line it with cheesecloth, but then it gets too impacted and you have to scrape it every so often. But I guess there's just no easy way to do it, it looks like. I think you have to scrape it regardless. You know, those seeds accumulate in the bottom of the mill. You have to empty it every so often because there's nowhere for the juice to go because it's so jammed up with seeds. So that's just part of the process. I think you have to go through it. Yeah. Counterclockwise scrapes the bottom, and then you just dump it out. Not a problem. Yeah, that's not too hard. No. Oh, counterclockwise. Well, I don't think I don't think I knew about that. Yeah, if you do it clockwise, it presses it through the holes, and then if you go in reverse, it'll scrape up all that stuff. Yeah. Carmel, I guess we're both saying that, especially (laughs) since you don't make vats of jam, that the best thing would be, you know, one of these manual food mills, and just make sure you do the counterclockwise thing and empty it out. About how many berries would you say to put in at a time? A couple of cups, maybe? Depends on the size of the mill. You don't want it to be much higher up than what do you think? I think two cups is, two to three cups is about right. Yeah. Again, it's right, the size of the mill, but they don't hold that much. That's great. I think that'll help tremendously. I'll wait for next year's harvest, and I'll try all the tips that you gave me. Oh, and do let us know after the fact. We'd love to hear back (laughs) from callers. All right. I certainly will. All right. Thank you. All righty. Bye. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we'll hear from legendary pastry chef Claudia Fleming. That and more after the break. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats, but for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Claudia Fleming, pastry chef and author of The Last Course which features pastry recipes from Fleming's time at New York City's Gramercy Tavern. The last course was first published in 2001 and was recently reissued after being out of print, but also in high demand for many years. Claudia, welcome to Milk Street. 
Thank you for having me. I'm such a huge fan. Well, this is a little embarrassing, uh, but I, I obviously know of you, Danny Meyer, uh, Tom Colicchio, people you've worked with. And I got the book, The Last Course. I had, for some reason, completely overlooked this book. And I fell in love with it. You were not alone. Well, (laughs) this was a great, I mean, it's a fabulous book. Thank you so much. So you mentioned that you were a dancer early on. And you Mm -hmm. said that technique was critical, uh, obviously, to being a good dancer. And you took that same philosophy to being a pastry chef. Um, What are some of the techniques to being a really top-level pastry chef you think are the hardest to master or maybe the most important to master? I think timing is pretty important, although it's not a, a technique. It has a lot to do with running a successful restaurant and being a successful cook. I think that good technique, no matter what you're doing, comes from repetition because it develops muscle memory and then it just becomes almost innate, and you can then begin to be creative after you've established good technique. Okay, let's get into cooking now. What about the temperature of butter for creaming? Do you keep it like 65 degrees before creaming? Have you ever tested using cold butter right out of the fridge? I almost never use cold butter out of the fridge. Actually, I can say I never use cold butter out of the fridge. When I'm making a drop cookie, chocolate chip cookie, oatmeal raisin cookie, that kind of thing, I like the butter quite warm, actually, Hmm. because I don't like to overbeat the butter because then it's too aerated and I get cakier, puffier cookies. I tend toward the crunchy kind of cookie. So I prefer, you know, room temperature, a little warmer butter, and I... I then don't fully beat in eggs. The sugar and eggs will look kind of curdled, and then I'll slowly add the butter and have it come together as opposed to beating cold butter. How about, this is the, the, the killer question we get all the time, how to know when something is properly cooked, when it's done. Do you have a, a good technique for this you can share with us? Um, well, for cakes, they dome, right? And right. so... If you're looking at them continuously throughout their baking, you know, you see them go from flat and then the sides start to rise. And then, you know, when they've reached their full baking, they are mounded. And only then would I open the oven and give a little touch. And they spring back. I mean, that's, you know, that's just the age-old way of testing a cake, just a little spring back. Of course, that's different for a pie, of course. I'm always waiting for the juices to bubble in a pie all the way through. And what about a custard pie like pumpkin? The center is still not set? A little jiggly, right? right. Little That's jiggly. different from the cake. Right. I mean, everything has its, has its own weight. This is why baking scares people. I mean, everything's an exception to the rule. Um, okay, what about cookies? I've, I've found over the years that cookies have to be not fully set when you take them out of the oven. There's a lot of carryover cooking, let's say, in chocolate chip cookies. Yes. Oh, yes. So how do you know when a chocolate chip cookie's done? Again, they'll rise up, and then they fall. And then as soon as they fall, I take them out. Oh, really? Yeah. That's a good one. This is a private cooking school you're giving me. I mean, <laughs> this is terrific. But obviously, this requires a lot of looking at the stuff, right? right. So it's it's it is time-consuming. 
But I think one of the reasons that people are so reluctant to bake is because we don't do it every day. You know, I mean, people make dinner every day. And so you are much more familiar with that than with baking. And um, it's okay to make mistakes. Well, most of the time, you just call it something else and serve it, right? That's that. that <laughs> right? I, yeah, don't name it until it comes out of the oven. Isn't I, that one of yours? That's one of my uh, – <laughs> everything's in English custard if it doesn't set up right. Um, <laughs> I love that. Uh, you worked at Jams back in the 80s in New York on the Upper East Side. Jonathan mm-hmm. Waxman famously uh, ran that place. Um, mm-hmm. Could you just talk about Jams then? Because I think it was a sort of a, a watershed moment in the New York restaurant scene. It absolutely was. Um, the restaurant scene just exploded in those days. And Jonathan coming from California, you know, free-range chicken. Who ever heard of free-range chickens? Baby vegetables. I remember just towers of FedEx boxes with baby vegetables from California. Can you imagine that today? I mean, you'd be run out of New York with that kind of carbon footprint. I mean, literally all the vegetables were coming from California. It was crazy until he got people here to grow for him. But it was also the beginning of that sort of unstuffy hospitality. It was just a much more casual approach to service. It was not the French model. And it was so exciting. And every celebrity and, you know, musician and artist and you name it, they were there. Uh, let's just take a few of your biggest hits. So yeah. could you tell us a little bit about uh, your sweet corn ice cream? Well, that actually I had at a Mexican restaurant. And so it wasn't original, but I think as the the note on the recipe says, you know, sometimes you taste something that isn't particularly great, but it inspires you to make it great. And that was certainly one of them. I mean, I remember having it and it was, you know, probably made days ago and it was icy and had crystals in it and, you know. But other than that, it was uh, totally inspirational. Totally. I mean, corn has milk, right? right? And how do you make ice cream with milk? And it's sweet. And, oh, gosh, I just love that stuff. Um, Let's talk about your chocolate tart, which is also famous. Tell us a little bit about that. That was inspired by a Rolo. I love candy. And Rolos are um, one of my faves. And so I just, I felt like I wanted to pay homage to the Rolo. So just describe <laughs> how you make it and, and okay. what it looks like. It's a, uh, a chocolate sable dough. And it's filled with salted caramel and topped with a ganache. And it's very important that it's three quarters caramel and one quarter ganache. The proportion of caramel to chocolate, I think, is super important because, you know, if you're using really good chocolate, which I do, it can very easily overpower the caramel. And it's also very important to let the caramel get good and dark. So there's a little bitterness to it. I love that. And the thinner I can make it, the better. I think I've finally gotten the proportions and the size I actually make it in a financier mold, so it's super shallow. So it's even closer to being a candy now than it ever was. Is there something where you define dessert in a simplistic way? What are two or three really simple things you could do for dessert? 
Okay, so my latest favorite thing to do is to um, sear pears in brown butter, and then once they've browned, deglaze the pan with maple syrup, mm-hmm. stick it in the oven, and just cook them till they're tender. Ooh. Take the pears out, reduce the maple syrup a little bit, whisk in some butter and some vanilla ice cream, and yum. I mean, I just love roasted fruit. Um. You've been at this a long time. I mean, you sort of got into the restaurant business in the 80s, which is the perfect time to get in, right? I mean, that that was – you hey got there right yep. at the beginning. Yep. Anything else looking back over that time you'd want to share with us? I, I would have to really say those days at Jams. I mean, they were just so eye-opening and so exciting. I mean, it drew me in. It's what It's what made me want to do what I do. So what was your first job there and what was your first day like? My first job there was as a back waiter or busser. And I don't know that I remember my first day. It was just so overwhelming. What I do remember is that my uniform cost a million dollars. We had to wear white new buck shoes. Our shirts were from Brooks Brothers. Our pants were from Brooks Brothers. I mean, that was kind of crazy. You know, we were dressed sort of in California casual. And and did um, you have to buy them yourself? Oh, yes. Of course. Of course. I mean, imagine a server wearing white new buck shoes. I mean, how long do you think those lasted? Yeah, not, not. We were getting new shoes every <laughs> month. <laughs> um, so everything about that job was new and interesting. And it just seemed like no matter what it was, from the clothes to the plates to the artwork, everywhere I looked and everything I touched was new and different and exciting. And it, you know, it informed my sense of what a great restaurant was for forever. Claudia Fleming, it's been uh, just a great pleasure having you on Milk Street. Thank you. Oh, it's been an honor. Thank you so much. That was Claudia Fleming, pastry chef and author of The Last Course. You know, a great cookbook allows the reader to view the kitchen through the eyes of the author, and unfortunately, many of the greatest cookbooks of this genre are lesser known. So here are three that I recommend. First off, Charles Ranhofer. He was a French chef who cooked for Napoleon III. He later worked at Delmonico's in New York. He penned the 19th century's greatest and longest, a 1,200 pages cookbook, The Epicurean, in 1893. Second, Epitaph for a Peach by David Masumoto. This is perhaps the most poetic piece of food writing ever. It's a farmer's love letter to growing heirloom species in a world of hearty and also tasteless fruit. Finally, my favorite Colette Rossant's memoir, Apricots on the Nile. She chronicled Cairo between the wars while she was embedded with her Egyptian Jewish relatives. It's a daydream filled with jasmine vines, rattan, and shuttered French windows. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, Thai grilled pork skewers. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. As you know, things on skewers, uh, pork, chicken, etc., are very popular really almost all over the world at this point. Thailand is well known for this with pork skewers uh, with some coconut milk, dipping sauce. I like them so much that I came back to Milk Street and said, why don't we make them here? 
you did, and we did. <laughs> well, good. So we started with what kind of pork to use. Uh, we wanted something really fatty, so we obviously chose pork shoulder that has a lot of really nice flavor. Uh, the problem was it's really hard to slice pork shoulder thinly, it's so fatty. So we pop it in the freezer for about an hour, and that allows us to really get those nice thin slices. You want these to be really thin so that they cook in the amount of time on the grill. So pork shoulder is usually barbecue material, but since you're slicing it so thin, you can grill it quickly? That's right. It takes okay. only about 15 minutes. So a marinade, I assume, is coming up? It does. Uh, so it sits in a marinade of garlic, cilantro, soy sauce, fish sauce. In Thailand, they use palm sugar, which is hard to find here, so we substituted dark brown sugar. It needs to be marinated for a minimum of two hours, but you can do it up to 12 hours. So this is something great to do ahead of time and then grill it right before you're going to eat it. Now, I was promised coconut milk mm -hmm. somewhere. Is that just a side, a glass of coconut milk, or do you actually use it in the cooking? It's a really cool idea. So what we do is we put the skewers on the grill, they get a little bit of char, and then we brush it with the coconut milk. And what that does is add a lot of really cool flavor, but it also softens up the meat a little. So mm. when you get that flavor of the char, you don't get that kind of hard, crunchy part. It's really nice and soft still and tender, but has all of that coconut flavor too. So I assume there's something spicy coming. You can't have a skewer without dipping sauce, and our recipe is no exception. So this is a chili lime dipping sauce, so it's really sweet and sour, but also has a lot of heat to it. Really amps up the flavor. So a little bit of prep make ahead, but then quick cooking, nice spicy sauce at the end. So Thai grilled pork skewers in Boston as well as in Thailand. Thank you. You're welcome. You can get this recipe for Thai grilled pork skewers at 177milkstreet.com. This is Mill Street Radio. Coming up, we chat with Bianca Bosker about competitive tablescaping. We'll be right back. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit... 177milkstreet.com slash tours. That's 177milkstreet.com slash tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Malt and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Jennifer Church. Jennifer, where are you calling from? I'm calling from Collinsville, Illinois, just across the river from St. Louis. How can we help you today? I have a question about a hog that I buy every year from a local farmer. <laughs> Whoa, okay. When I, have it, <laughs> um, when I have it processed, I get the feet and the hocks and the necks, and they're always the last thing in my freezer at the end of the year. I get about half of the hocks smoked for beans and stuff like that, but I kind of struggle to come up with something to do with the necks and the rest of the hocks. 
the feet I make a lot of stocks with, but if there's anything other interesting I can do with them, that would be helpful. Well, let's address the neck issue. You could take it any direction. You would take a stew meat. Of course, I'm always going to go to the French stew with red wine and mushrooms and onions and, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe throw in a little bacon, pork and pork, why not? Or, you know, you could even use it in that classic Italian, you know, Sunday, they call it gravy, which has Mm -hmm. stewed meat and tomato sauce, and it's cooked for hours, and it's got tons of depth of flavor. Or you could take it an Asian route, do like a sort of a Korean stew, because the meat, when you cook it low and slow, will come off the bones, and you got a double whammy because you've got the bones and you've got the meat, both of which are contributing flavor. So that's sort of what I would do. I was in Oaxaca, I don't know, a couple years ago, and I cooked with a woman. She made a yellow mole with pork neck and tomatoes and chilies, it's herbs, and then she thickened it with masa, with uh, corn flour. It was delicious. So I totally agree with Sarah. You know, something that's braised low and slow and all that collagen and tissue and everything melts and you get this wonderful, great gelatinous body to the... The dish, and you get the meat, too. Well, that all sounds delicious. All right, and I'm impressed you get a whole hog. Wow. Good for you. That's great. You you must have a big freezer. <laughs> uh, two of them. Yeah, yeah. I bet. Okay. I'd like an extra freezer. That's great. Anyway, Jennifer, thank you. Thanks, Jennifer. Thank yes. you very much. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a culinary mystery and like to give us a call, try 855-426-9843. The number, once again, is 855-426-9843 or email us at questions at MillStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, I'm Madeline. I live in Beaumont, California, and I'm 12 years old. How can we help you today? My question is, do you have any tips on how to make the perfect macarons every time? I have made them a couple times, and sometimes they turn out, but other times they'll crack. Madeline, I'm floored. You're 12 years old. You're talking about those French sandwich things? Yeah. Wow. I've never made them. So. <laughs> I haven't either, but I'm a little bit familiar with them. Uh, tell us how it, how the recipe basically goes. You sift the almond flour and confectioner sugar in a bowl, and then you beat the egg whites, and then you add the granulated sugar, and then you gradually add the almond flour mixture. I'm pretty sure that the egg whites with the granulated sugar are supposed to be beaten to soft peaks before you fold it into the other mixture. So the step says use an electric mixer to beat the egg whites until fluffy and then add the granulated sugar in intervals, increase the mixer's speed and beat the mixture until it holds very stiff peaks. Have you been doing that? Maybe not very stiff peaks. Yeah, because that's an important step. That's what's going to give the lift to your cookies, make them light and airy. Otherwise, they'll be dense. I wonder if perhaps that's the problem here. Uh Uh-oh, I think we have to have a food fight. (laughs) Why? When it comes to egg whites, I've found that egg whites are always best not beaten to a stiff peak. To stiff peaks. No, actually, I agree with you. Because when you fold the flour in or the batter, whatever you're folding in. You can overbeat them. It's going to be very hard to fold that in without destroying the egg whites. Right. And the other thing about that recipe is the sugar, what you really want to do, I think, is to start adding the sugar when the whites start to break up and they get a little frothy, like after about 45 seconds. The other thing is, I don't know if there's any lemon juice in this or cream of tartar. Is there any acid when you add the sugar to the whites? No. Yeah, just add like a a quarter teaspoon of cream of tartar. How many whites are there in this? 
for? Yeah, a quarter teaspoon of cream of tartar, it's an acid. Both sugar and an acid will help you develop soft, malleable whites that are hard to destroy. And now I'll return you to your regular programming. Actually, Chris, we don't disagree uh, about soft peaks versus stiff peaks. I thoroughly agree. So when you're finished beating the whites, do they hold a peak, an inch or two on the whisk? I mean, what's the texture? I think when I normally do it and I, when I lift it up, it'll hold it for like a little bit and then it'll like disappear. I think Sarah's actually onto something. I think it should hold a, a very soft peak. In other words, the point will flip over a little bit. You know, it, it won't stand straight up. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's soft and creamy looking but it will hold its shape. Okay. You weren't overbeating them. Maybe you were underbeating them a little. Yeah, slightly. Yeah. Uh, so I think I would attempt to do that, and that will give you a lighter, airier cookie that doesn't, I hopefully, doesn't crack. Egg whites are tricky, so don't be hard on yourself. But, you know, try to get those soft peaks before you fold it into the dry mixture. I think you'll have much better success. Absolutely amazing. Thanks, Madeline. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for this week's cooking tip from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Mary, and my cooking tip is that whenever you're making any recipe, you should taste every ingredient individually so you have an idea of what each one tastes like and how it comes together to make the flavor of your overall dish. I think this is really helpful to understanding the different flavor profiles in a dish. Thanks. Enjoy. If you'd like to share your own culinary hack or secret ingredient, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's journalist Bianca Bosker. Bianca, what's uh, on your mind this week? So I want to talk about something that, if I'm being totally honest, has irked me a bit, which is the rise of tablescapes. Now, I feel like the last Hmm. few years we've been in the midst of this social media-fueled tablescape arms race, where it's no longer enough to just make a meal, but now when you present this dinner to friends, you now have to, you know, labor over accessories, props, flowers, mirrors, chargers, tablecloths, I mean, the whole nine yards. No, wait, 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 wait. In Vermont, we haven't ever heard the term tablescape. So is this like LA or something? Or where is this (laughs) happening? So I think this is happening all over the place. I mean, it's been going on for uh, many centuries, in fact. Um, We haven't always called it tablescaping. So the word tablescape is actually credited with being coined by the Food Network chef Sandra Lee. Um, And if you haven't seen her tablescapes, they are, I mean, it's like a rainbow just threw up on your plate. Like you really need sunglasses to look at them. You've got, you know, orange and magenta check striped tablecloths with chargers (laughs) and pink and orange. And so she sort of is actually credited with having coined the term tablescape. But this idea of setting the table in a really theatrical way is, of course, nothing new. Well, I mean, lots of chefs and in England have been doing this for some time, right? I mean, they, they do the seascape and then they play the noises of the sea and they give you the whole experience. And, you know, it <laughs> sounds like complete, utter nonsense drivel to me, but, but what is the history of it? 
When we go back, actually, I think it's, it's helpful to think about where we have come from. So back in the Middle Ages, setting the table was a pretty rough enterprise. You had basically a wooden table, you had no plates, you ate with your hands and with bread. That began to change by the 17th century. The French, uh, the, you know, the royalty of France really led the way in that. And what happened at that time was this explosion of crazy intricate dining customs. You would have these towering table fountains spurting water and wine, pyramids of cut fruit, things that would be part dish, part taxidermy. So um, this whole theater of the meal was really important. You might bring out, let's say, a pheasant pot pie, but they would actually have put the feathered wings of the slaughtered pheasant sticking out of the pie. And um, drinking games were amazing. Um, Automatons were a very big deal. You might have a goddess Diana on a chariot that you could wind up, she would pull back and shoot an arrow, and wherever that arrow landed, that was the person who had to drink. Gee, I, and I missed all this. Where, where was I? I mean, yeah. I, 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 I do have a comment, which is it's so interesting that most of our high culinary Epicurean traditions come from the one one thousandth of the one percent, right? It was just all the nobility, right? Everybody else was barely getting by. Oh, yeah. And I think it's interesting to talk about the role of tablescapes in reinforcing these class distinctions. So I came across this absolute incredible engraving that was done of a meal that was hosted in 1693. And you had what was called sugar trophies. Some people also call them edible monuments, but basically a floor to ceiling sugar sculpture that has what appeared to be multiple life-sized human forms, some beasts. And apparently these edible, I guess it's sort of the original edible arrangement, if you will. Um, these would be used in these big feasts for the nobility. And then sometimes they would take them, put them in a sort of courtyard, and all of the princes and princesses would retreat to balconies and watch common people fight over <laughs> the food. I mean, it's a pretty barbaric history when you think well, about it. Tablescapes led to the French Revolution. I mean, clearly, right? I mean, that was, <laughs> that's what it, everyone was so upset about. Well, no, you're, I mean, you're right to some extent because eating was a spectator sport. I mean, at Versailles, they held the, you know, the Le Grand Couvert where people could come and the whole point was to watch uh, the king eat. So this, after the French Revolution, uh, in Victorian times, of course, the tablescapes, they had hundreds of different implements for eating different foods. So when did this all sort of fall apart? The First World War was sort of the very end of this uh, process? I don't know why you think it's fallen apart. <laughs> um, in fact, we now have, starting in the 1930s in the United States, we saw the rise of competitive tablescaping. And that's something <laughs> that goes on to this day. I'd say the reigning competition appears to be the LA County Fair, where 20 lucky participants, and it's very competitive even to become a participant, apparently, um, compete for best in show of best tablescape. And so what would be a winning tablescape today, or like back in the 1930s? This was not nearly as elaborate as Florida's ceiling sugar sculpture. It's not too far off, to be honest. I mean, I highly recommend going through this because, I mean, you the categories in which people compete, you know, they can be given a theme are things like Candyland, How the West Was Won, 
get your kicks on Route 66. And I will say that some of them become so ornate that they kind of make you lose your appetite. I mean, it's kind of hard to find even where the plate setting is in the midst of all of this. They are incredibly creative, but part of me does wonder how they aren't a distraction from the meal. It's interesting, the 1930s, the Great Depression, this was still uh, something that was going on. But maybe in this brave new world, uh, we'll move back to the wood table uh, with a few simple implements and actually focus on the community and the food. Is that possible? I think so, but I have to say that I actually started to feel differently about tablescapes. And I have to credit MFK Fisher. She wrote this book actually in 1942, so in the midst of all of these wartime shortages called How to Cook a Wolf. And she had this great suggestion, which is, you know, when times are really tough, when you feel, as she wrote, the wolf snuffing under the door and keening softly on cold nights, she recommended, you know, that is the time to light a candle, to pour yourself a glass of wine. And if I were to editorialize slightly, you know, find a, some flowers to put on your table. Of course, we don't have to go quite as far as sugar trophies, but I actually think that that idea of turning a meal from this just sort of act of nutrition to an experience, right? This idea of using a little bit of theater in your everyday life for me, I find that I do it just, you know, after I've cooked dinner, the kitchen is a mess. If I just turn off the lights and put one candle on the table and eat by candlelight, it transforms the whole meal. Bianca Bosker, uh, brisket by candlelight, bringing <laughs> a little bit of theater to kitchens near you. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was journalist Bianca Bosker. You know, one lesson of history is that the rich and powerful love to indulge themselves in excess. Wealthy Romans coveted pheasant tongue, and in the 19th century, French royalty demanded plates decorated with die-cut coxcombs. Marie Antoinette was misquoted. She actually said, let them eat brioche, during a time of famine when bread was expensive and very hard to find. So, you might say that history is a cycle of ups and downs. Ms. Antoinette ended up losing her head at age 37, although she had an ample supply of brioche while alive. Which only goes to show that you can't have your cake and eat it too. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or simply want to binge listen to every single episode, please download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find all of our recipes, take an online cooking class, or order our new cookbook, Milk Street Fast and Slow, Instant Pot Cooking at the Speed You Need. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsaboff. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubop Crew. 
Additional music by George Bernal Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. <laughs> <laughs>